Welcome to episode 152 of Destination Linux. This is a podcast about using, learning, sharing our passion for Linux and open source. Whether you're a noob, a master suitor, we welcome you. My name is Noah, and with me today are the $9 half-sitting, half-standing stools of Linux, Ryan, Michael, and Zeb. Zeb, how has your week been, and what have you wasted $9 on? Um, well, thankfully, I haven't wasted $9 at all, because I, we've good. been putting the finishing touches to Peppermint 10 Respin. Um, and it's very, very close to, to being made available. And there may very well be an early Christmas present for our forum users and fans out there. So, yeah, been a, been a pretty hectic week. So what's coming in Peppermint 10 that you can tease people with in this respin? Carl Schneider wallpaper. There you go. Carl Schneider wallpaper. I mean, that's good. Are you guys going to have an updated kernel in the respin, I assume? Updated package? I couldn't possibly say. Even for my wonderful friends here at Destination Linux. I would get kicked off the team if I was to spill the beans. But it's exciting. That's what you're getting at, right? It's very, very good. All right. Michael, what uh, what have you wasted $9 on this week? I'm so glad that we put this in the show for some reason. You're welcome. So um, I bought a stool that is a ergo stool. It's like uh, this thing. And if you can, on the video, you can see it. But basically, mm-hmm. it's like it's like a stool, except it has like chair f- functionality where it goes up and down with like a lever and stuff. And uh, I hate you guys. Also known as a chair. And it's I got it for nine dollars, which is a really good deal, even if they want to give me a hard time about it. Uh, Isn't it so, good deal if you get a stool that has no armrests and no back? That's what I stools mean, are for. What what do you, that's called a chair. Otherwise, well, just, he's what are you just talking about? Maybe for twelve dollars, you could have got one that had a back and a and a, like some armrests. Yeah, you know? no, because the, down in. All right. Anyway, what, so what else have you been up to this week? <laughs> uh, hey, hey, uh, hey, Ryan, what have you been up to this week other than uh, trolling me? <laughs> Does he need something else? Aren't you going to tell us about the lug? No, went, you don't deserve to know anything else. <laughs> you tell us about the lug. We're no, interested. I don't We're going to take your stool away. We're going to take your stool away. <laughs> well, he'll fall over because. <laughs> We'll, we'll just push you over. <laughs> this is such a stupid intro. Hey, you're the one that bought the stool. We're just talking. About yeah, but you didn't. <laughs> Why is this even put into the show? Like, it's not. It's it's a great deal. It's nine bucks free shipping. How could you freak out about that? It's like what? when it's around in a year, then we'll agree that it was maybe a not such yeah. a bad waste of money. Anyway, <laughs> tell us about this lug. Yeah, tell us about the lug. It's a group where people meet to talk about. You guys are making me edit so much. So I'm going to pause it right here and do a quick little update about what happened in the post-production. Essentially, there was so much of this stool joke that I decided just to leave it in and whatever. Well, there were some things I had to have to take it out, but that's because of just time and the flow was weird. So those pieces I put at the end of the show in an outtake form. And yeah, so if you're interested in checking out what happened and how just crazy this sometimes can be, uh, be sure to check out the outtakes. And if you're interested, you could actually watch the show live by becoming a patron by going to destinationlinux.org slash Patreon or destinationlinux.org slash sponsors to watch it as it happens and all the shenanigans and chaos that ensues. No, we're Did not. We're trying to drag you back on task, but you're, you're distracted <laughs> by... I, I took the stool to the lug, of course, naturally. Why, why, <laughs> why else would you have a lug meeting other than taking a stool to the thing? Uh, so really, it was really cool to have the lug because we changed the way we're doing it. Instead of doing a 
um, okay, we used to do like where it was just a going to restaurants and hanging out kind of thing. This meeting was at a, li- a local library because they have this. I found out this one library has a free re- conference room meeting thing where you just reserve the room and that's it. Uh, that's so, nice. Yeah, so that was awesome. And uh, in that meeting, we got, we this was like the first time we ever did it that that place. So we, people brought in like things that they worked on for work and, and like explained certain like uh, their workflows and stuff like that. So I learned a lot about uh, Proxmox. And I show them how I did Caden Live stuff for the show and all kinds of different stuff. And it was really interesting. And uh, I actually got to try out a keyboard that has uh, Cherry MX Blues because I have browns and I never tried blues before. And they basically feel the same, but it does have like a different feeling with the sound of the click. You do notice it a lot more. Although I didn't want to put it into the... Uh, I can't get a blues because then it would be in the recordings all the time. So... Anyway, it was really fun, and I liked it. And I also like my nine nine dollar stool. I'm I'm glad that you uh, you got your money's worth for your nine dollar stool. Ryan, what exciting and, and adventurous things have you been up to this week? Well, I didn't get anything as exciting as a stool, Noah. But I did do is release a video on XFCE. So we we have a fantastic group on Telegram for Destination Linux that's well over a thousand, one of the biggest Linux groups out there on telegram which is awesome so if you're not a part of it you need to join but some people were talking about they wanted to get into xfce but they felt when they you know boot it up it just looks too old they want some of the modern features that they see in things like kde or cinnamon desktop and those type of things so what i did is i put a video out there showing some of the tweaks and customizations that i do in xfce to make it look modern. Now, people like Michael and others watching the video who are very specific about their design elements, because Michael will tell you I'm in no way a designer. I'm not good at it. You know, they may go in there and say, well, I like to have this is a, this is not perfectly parallel to this and that type of stuff. But at the end of the day, what the video shows is how you can customize XFCE, how you can put docs in place, how you can modernize the themes, put different icons in. Um, you know, do some basic things to make it look very modern. And and a lot of people seem to uh, appreciate the video out there of ways that you can make XFCE look good. But it did get me thinking, you know, a lot of implementations of XFCE are just XFCE at its base. They don't do any modifications to it. They just kind of throw it out there and like, this is XFCE on Arch. This is XFCE on, you know, this Ubuntu-based distribution. And so... That kind of does give XFCE a bad rep, a bad rap in a lot of situations mm-hmm. because people are seeing it without any modifications done to it at all. And it does kind of look like it's from the 90s when you look at it without any customization. Now, Zubuntu does some good work, I think, making XFCE look pretty decent out of the box. But hopefully for those who love XFCE, the simplicity of XFCE, the ease of customization but want something that looks a little newer, give them some options that they can play around with there in that video. Mm-hmm. And I just want to point out as well, that I think you'll get a lot more mileage out of your $9 XFCE desktop than Michael will when in six months time, it's sitting in that back corner that's all bare at the moment with a couple of laptops on top. I can't um, wait to see it. Yeah. Accurate. But he's going to donate those laptops. That's true. Yes. Yeah. We're going to see those gone soon. So Noah, what have you been up to? Well, I got my Synology uh, disk station in. I got it set up, and the interface is just, it is out of this world. The ability to 
uh, to, 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 to get encrypted RTSP camera feeds into the NVR itself and then to have the kind of mobile support that they have. And, and also, I found Synology support to be absolutely fantastic. I had a weird thing that happened to me. Interestingly enough, the day it came on Tuesday, right before I go talk about it on the air, I go on, I go on Ask Noah Show and I give a full review of this thing. And I gave it pretty high praise because it's a really good box. And I get off the air and I look at my phone and I have like 12 missed alerts. And I open my notifications up and it says motion detected at front door, motion detected here. Motion. And I went, okay, okay, wait a minute. How am I getting motion alerts from my NVR that's sitting behind a firewall? Is This thing must be going through some sort of traversal server. So I go into the settings, can't find anything about push notifications over a traversal service. And I'm like, well, this is terrifying. It's communicating with Synology's servers and it doesn't even give me, it didn't, doesn't give me control over it. So I opened a support ticket with them and I said, hey, how is this working? And the guy actually sent me the white paper on exactly how Synology oh, push wow. notifications work. And, and, and it's, so it generates an encryption key and it's sending it to the server. And then that is paired with an encryption key to the app. And, it's going, and it explains how all of this stuff works. And then at the very end, it shows me exactly where the option is to turn it off or disable it if you don't want, if you don't want any you know, connected services back to Synology. And I went, great. Now, I, now that I know how it works, I'm perfectly comfortable leaving it on. No video goes there. It's encrypted. I can turn it off at any time. And it's basically just events. And you can see mm -hmm. what the event package contains. That event packet contains you know, motion at and then camera name. Like, that's fine. I don't mind if that encryptedly goes to Synology and then back to my app. That's fine. Like, this company is fantastic, and it is mind-blowing to me that not more people are using them. And so I have, like, I have a bunch of these that I have ordered now, uh, and I've got these uh, 2020 X's 2025s that I'm putting all over my house and all outside of the outside of my house, so that I can uh, I can have cameras everywhere, and then I can just pull them up. And uh, I bought the biggest license pack that Synology offers, and I'm throwing cameras at it right and left and putting mm -hmm. them all over the city and seeing if I can pull them back in at my house. <laughs> and so far, I have not been able to break this box. So Wait, really putting happy. them all over the city. I don't think you're supposed to do that, Noah. That's yeah, you, well, so I thought about it, but I wanted to keep track of the best deals on sit-stand stools. And the only <laughs> way to do that is to bring little IP cameras and set them around and just watch for a sale. And hopefully <laughs> I'll find one that goes on sale for nine bucks or less. <laughs> you find them on garage sales normally. Yeah, I have, I have cameras at every garage sale. In now, let me ask you something, Noah. It, it, mm. Besides the looking for sales on a, on a good stool. Yeah, I don't regret the 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 purchase of the Ergo stool. I do regret you will telling by the you. time we're done with you. Continue, Ryan. Synology is the backup solution that I used prior to you recommending FreeNAS, and yes. now with the FreeNAS server, I have uh, a lot of power and a lot of control. Yes, but Synology is a very and it works on Linux has a very complex and great backup system in place for Linux machines and other operating systems as well. Have you mm -hmm. tried that out? Has this convinced you enough in what they've done here with the cameras that you may be looking at this as a backup solution as well? I considered it until the default option was ButterFS, and my second option was EXT4. And while I don't have anything against EXT4, suffice to say I'm not real hip on ButterFS, and the, the the fact is, like, Synology, and if you had one, then you know what I'm talking about when I say their web UI is second to none. Like, you feel like you're at a desktop operating system, what it feels like. Uh, and so their web UI is great. But if I actually wanted to trust that my data is going to be there for the next 50 years, I want that sucker on ZFS. Interesting. So, so if so. they added a ZFS option, would that change your mind entirely? Maybe if they added a ZFS option and there were people that rolled it out to the scale that... Um, that 
that that FreeNAS has done, that IX system has done. I mean, you know, you have installations that are, you know, hundreds of petabytes, you know, spread up across multiple machines. And, you know, it's powering museums and city governments and, you know, state right. governments. And that's that's the track history that FreeNAS has. Uh, you know, Synology, I think, is a great choice. If you look, if you want a pre-box solution that's less than 500 bucks and you want to pull it out and you just want to have a NAS that you can rely on and trust that it will be on your premises and be mostly secure and mostly reliable, I think the Synology is a great way to go. I think if you want the best storage solution out there, you go with FreeNAS every time. I just don't think that for this, like FreeNAS doesn't have anything like Surveillance Station, like Synology has. And frankly, after looking at ExactVision and some $10,000, $15,000 solutions, the truth is the Synology NAS with Surveillance Station is actually a better product. It's more reliable. It's more versatile. There's lower cost of ownership. The licensing makes way more sense. You buy these, um, you buy this little license pack that, and it, what's stupid is you can't buy it online. You actually have to purchase this physical thing, and then you open this little flap up, and there's a there's a little key in there that you type, and then you get access to, you know, another eight cameras. Uh, and so you can buy a bunch of these and you can add them. But the thing that I really like about it is that you can transfer them to other stations. So it, it's nice. you buy it for life. Now I own. Now I have eight cameras. I can put it on whatever Synology NAS I decide to run. If I wanted to combine them, you know, I could have eight over here and eight over there and eight over there and then pull them all into one NAS. It's just a phenomenal way to set the licensing up. And nobody else has anything even close to this. So now we were talking about the disaster that is things like the ring camera, and we've seen it right. all over the news recently of these devices getting hacked, people tormenting people's kids with them, mm -hmm. pretending to rob people, all this stuff going on where it's just it, it's so insecure that any people are just going out there and hacking them for fun. Right. Uh, when you compare the fact that in the Synology setup with 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 you and your experience makes a lot of sense. These run the power, I think, is over Ethernet. It's mm -hmm. power over Ethernet for the cameras. That's so right. as long as you have Ethernet running into those spots of your home, you could set it up. But the draw for things like Blink and Ring is their Wi-Fi cameras with 18, 650 batteries in the back or something along those lines. You put them up and they're Wi-Fi connected. Is there anything like that for your consumer that doesn't want to run wires and everything else through their home that you found comparable in all this research yet? Not really. There is access does make cameras that tie into um, like, uh, you know, Zigbee, not Zigbee. What's the other one? Uh, one? One of those protocols for, for automation stuff, but they, uh, you know, Wi-Fi cameras just really aren't a thing. If you, if, I mean, they, they, they exist uh, clearly, they, but as far as professional installation, where, where you actually want to rely on these things, the cameras that I'm buying, this Axis 2025, I expect that camera to last me 10 or 15 years. If you look at the past products that Axis has made, they're, they're 10 to 15 year devices. Uh, there, there was, a, I just read a paper that came out um, that was talking about how 2008 was a year where they weren't, Axis wasn't sure if they were going to be able to hold their market. And now here, we're, look where we are, we're in 2019 and they're still on top. So I, they're, they're 10 plus years devices. There's nobody, and I mean nobody, that's going to have their ring camera after 10 years, right? The API mm -hmm. is going to get deprecated. The ring is going to go out of business. They're going to get bought out by somebody else. The app isn't going to be, something is going to happen and nobody's going to have those cameras in 10 years and they're all going to be swapping them. It's just, I don't believe that that IoT technology is is here to stay. I think it's disposable. And so if you want to waste money on it, then you knock yourself out. And if you, like with the Ring doorbell specifically, not only is are there a bunch of privacy concerns, but they don't even let you get access to the raw video feed. 
you don't get access to that. You have to go through their stupid server and their stupid app. If you want to tie it into like Home Assistant or you want to uh, tie it into the Synology NVR or you want to have one central place to look at all your cameras, well, guess what you can't do? But you can't do that with Ring because you have to go through their stupid app and their stupid servers and they'll store all your stuff and then they'll give the police access to it without a warrant and then they'll store all of that stuff unencrypted and give access to whoever it is they want because of third-party doctrine. I just... I really have a problem with the way and the direction that home automation is going. And it's exciting to me that there are companies out there and there are solutions out there for people that want to do it right. So for the NVR specifically, Synology software, when I've used it, you you pretty much have access. Like you said, it's like a desktop and all the apps are there. Did you buy a specific Synology NVR solution, or did you just get a Synology disk station and ran that software off? Yep, they have the and they make one actual NVR. The twelve eighteen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They they make the the twelve eighteen, which is an actual NVR. And the only thing, based on my research, that separates the NVR from the disk station is on the back of the NVR twelve eighteen. There's an HDMI output, and so you can actually watch. Uh, the live streams. Of course, it's the exact same feed that you get by just going into the surveillance station web app. But if you wanted a physical HDMI connection, that's one thing that the the NVR does. Oh, and it does have a COM port on the back too, so you can tie it into some control stuff. But the software that runs on the NVR 1218 is DSM, Disk Station Manager, which is the exact same software that runs on every other disk station. So I got the 718 Plus because the NVR1218 will support up to four cameras. The, uh, the, the, uh, the 718 Plus will support up to 32 cameras. Wow. Um, and so, and it was, 100, it was 180 bucks more. So I would rather have the bigger one that supports more cameras, but, comma, the, there's nothing wrong with the 1218 if you're looking for a small thing. Any Synology will work. Surveillance Station is an application that you install on the Synology, and it's just in their app center. And it's a free app and it runs on all of them to the best of my understanding. And if you're saying to yourself, man, it sure feels weird to buy a NAS and then install a third party app that's maybe made by Synology, but seems like an afterthought. And that's going to be the best NVR that money can buy. I was there with you. I was a little skeptical. And then it showed up. And then I realized this is ridiculous. It's, it's amazing to me this hasn't taken off because mm-hmm. Synology should get, well, they shouldn't give up on NASAs because they do a good job. But in addition to doing NASAs, they should really focus on uh, surveillance because they would wipe their competition. They would wipe the floor with their competition. And this the is so much better bottom, than you. Probably bring the prices down because that's the biggest. Two hundred bucks, man. I mean, how much? How much mm-hmm. more well, can you bring? By the, the price time down? you had the disk station and the camera in there, you're you're looking at close to you know one camera and a disk station is going to be six hundred bucks, and you're honestly competing in a, an arena where people can go in there and buy an eighty dollar Blink camera that comes with mm-hmm. the big station. And yes, there's the privacy and we get that, right? We get why you need to spend more money here. But I think your average consumer is just going to go, well, 80 bucks, I'm up and running. Yeah, there's also actually a like a, a camera that you can connect with your, your Wi-Fi that's like, um, it's it's mountable through like magnets. So you can put it on any, pla- any surface that's metal and it's like $25 or something. Mm-hmm. It's mad. Yeah. It, it, well, it is a uh, massive business because it was actually Amazon who bought Ring for just over a billion dollars. Yeah. Uh, what, what I would, mental. I guess, what I would tell somebody that's considering that is, first of all, if you are interested in home security, you should ask yourself: Are you comfortable putting cameras in your house that somebody else may get access to? And if the answer to that question is yes, I don't care if the camera's in my house because somebody may get access to it, then go ahead and buy the Blink, go ahead and buy the Ring, go ahead and buy whatever internet-connected camera you want. Don't change the default password if you don't want to. It's fine, and you'll wind up on some search engine that, that will stream your video if you want to do that. 
the alternative to that is spend a little bit extra money. It'll cost you a little bit more, but it'll be the last surveillance systems that you buy for 10 years plus. It will be expandable because even if I upgrade the cameras as te- camera technology changes, I can still use the same disk station. I'm unlikely to ever want more uh, you know, cameras than, than 32 in my house, for crying out loud. Uh, and you're supporting a company that is creating on-premises equipment. There's no subscription fee. There's no AWS servers. There's no place to send your videos to. It's all mm-hmm. on your premises. So it comes down to a privacy thing and a longevity thing. And if and if your answer is, I want the cheapest, quickest, dirtiest solution, I don't care about my privacy, then by all means, buy a, buy a WiseCam and stick it in your front door and wave to the Chinese. <laughs> well, I mean, seriously, I mean, that's really, I mean, that's what, you know, that's where you're at. This episode of Destination Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with their intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and, well, there's a lot more. You can get all of this plus access to their world-class customer support for, get this now, as low as $5 per month. That's That's free, That's free. it is, basically, I mean, just yeah. get like one less Happy Meal for your kids, let them starve for a day, and you can get a DigitalOcean server. That's all you have to do. You can use the flexible pricing structure, and you can get that down to as low as 0.7 cents per hour. As Ryan would say, that's darn near free. That's darn near free. DigitalOcean also has 2,000 cloud agnostic tutorials to help you stay up to date. Why? Because they want you to learn how to administrate the Linux server, and they just say, hey, we have the best pricing structure out there. We have the best servers out there. We have the most data centers available. Why wouldn't you choose us? We'll just give the tutorials away for you for free. So you can go there and check out those 2,000 cloud agnostic tutorials. Start getting an idea of how to spin up your server and figure out how you can best spend your $5 or 0.7 cents per hour with the latest open source software languages and frameworks. And then it gets even better because you're a listener to the best Linux podcast ever. You're going to get one month free with a $50 credit. All you have to do is go to our special website. It's do.co slash dl. That's do dot co slash dl and then you'll get started on DigitalOcean with that fifty dollar credit again by going to do dot co slash dl and a huge thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of destination linux this week in our community feedback martin writes in to say hello gentlemen i'd kick off the mandatory love the show michael is the best what etc 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 but let me just get down to business. Somebody listens to this show quite often. I love it. After running Fedora Silver Blue as my main distro for the past year, I decided to make the switch to Arch to feel as cool as Ryan. That is how it's done. After testing out a few different Arch-based distros, I decided to go with Endeavor OS due to its simplicity and minimalism and, quite frankly, speed. I originally installed GNOME on top of the distro, but I've been playing with XFC for the past few days and mostly love it. My question is this, XFC might be fast and light on system resources, but it feels like I'm running a DE from 1995, no offense. I've played around with a bunch of different themes and found a look I like, but I hate the whisker menu. Is there a good replacement for it, a way to make me feel like I haven't jumped back in time every time I hit the super key? Love the great show. Keep up the great work. Proud patron, Martin. And he also has a website here, which he didn't specifically say to shout out, but he didn't say not to, which is Nerdy Legion, which is a Star Wars kind of fan group thing. So part of the Nerdy Legion, which is pretty cool. Uh, So we kind of covered this a little bit at the beginning, and this email wasn't, uh, we had a very similar ask in our Telegram chat, um, but I wanted to cover this email here as well to say that's one of the reasons I did the video. But as far as replacing the Whisker menu, I found that really interesting because I love the Whisker menu. I find Mm -hmm. it to be one of the best menus out there. It has 
search functionality built in, which is brilliant. You can move the search bar where you want. You have lots of customization options to add in descriptions, remove names, put generic names, put your icons, the hover support in the menu for just hovering your mouse over. So I would recommend if you haven't, check out my video. But one of the easiest, one of the best things about customizing XFCE is everything's a right click. So if you want to customize the whisker menu, right click on it, go to properties, all your options to change it are there. You can also add transparency. Maybe you don't like the color scheme or things like that. You can add transparency to that menu. You can make it blend into your background, for instance. There is a ton of customization options out there for XFCE. So consider checking that out. Now, on, on that, isn't, it, isn't there also uh, an application called Menu Libra that works at editing the whisker menu so if you really don't like it i'm sure you could dive into that it's, it's made by the same um team that does uh, xfce sean davis C- yeah. certainly sean davis of blue saber um and i think it's called menu libra and it, yeah it, it, you can literally change virtually anything you want well it doesn't change it doesn't change the customization of like the the appearance of it it changes like the fundamentals of it, like each entry it can edit the entries it can oh, like recategorize yeah. yeah ah right okay but you could, for instance, there are plenty of menus out there, and I don't use them, but isn't there um, one called Fish or something along those lines, Michael, that you can have do a shortcut key and it pops up and allows you to basically bypass the menus out there? If you want to get rid of the menus, you can use like what's basically what KRunner is, which is an app launcher, and there's a lot of those like Albert, uh, Synapse, uh, Cupfer, there's a bunch of them, mm-hmm. and they, they all have like this, you hit a shortcut and it pops up and you can do all kinds of things like that way. I actually prefer that method over the main menu system because uh, I like the main menu just to kind of like dig around to see what was by default, but if I'm going to be using the stuff that I want to use, I'm just going to use the launcher's tools like KRunner or uh, Synapse, Cupfer, and Albert. And, and you can install any of those in XFC just because it's a KDE app. You could still run it right in XFC. Yeah, in fact, you can actually install KWIN as the window manager if you want to replace that and still use XFCE to do everything else because uh, XFCE is, is very modular, so it allows you to do all kinds of stuff like that. Yep. Up next in the feedback, Ethan writes in to say, Hello, DL chaps. I've been listening to the show for a while now and is by far the best Linux show out there. Thank you very much for that. I wanted to chime in on the Zorin OS conversation about the debate over opt-in versus opt-out. I don't think it's moral to assume consent based on someone's lack of patience. I think it's important to maintain a principled and unified stance about telemetry, especially if we're going to be so vocally opposed to what Google and Microsoft do. I don't think it's bad when they do it, but good when we do it is a message that we should, that would resonate with a lot of users. And we might, we might switch to Linux or the current user base, uh, opt out versus by default, but with the opt in option is preferable in my opinion. Keep the great work, Ethan from Canada. So this is an interesting take because, you know, we've kind of gone, I don't think we've gone back and forth, but this is something in the community where a lot of people go back and forth on, should we have any telemetry within Linux? That's one of the things that makes Linux stand out. And here they're not saying remove telemetry altogether, but it should be something that you're by default opted out of versus opt in. I think the problem that was found when, these were trialed before in certain distributions were opted out was default is that people just left it there. They didn't really read the screen and they just kind of nexted and people weren't opting in. So by leaving it opting in, they were getting much more data back. Why is that data important? Well, for instance, Ubuntu says we're the most popular distro out there. They don't just say that most people in the community would agree. That's probably the case, but do we really know? 
Um, there was there was arguments that I was looking at back um, years ago between when Mint took the first spot in the Distro Watch tool, and people were saying, "Wow, why?" I saw some Reddit articles saying, "Well, how did Mint take overtake Ubuntu in being the most popular distro?" And then people had to fight back and say, "Well, Distro Watch really isn't a measurement tool of." what the most popular distro is. It's a measurement tool of what people are searching on DistroWatch. So at the end of the day, we have this incredible product that we all can feel like, wow, it's growing. I now walk through a store with all of my Linux gear on because yes, this is how I dress in real life. And people are like, hey, I love Linux or you know, my friend uses Linux or they'll stop and have a conversation about Linux. When I first started four years ago, that never happened. I would walk around and people, you'd see them read your shirt and be like, oh, what that shirt's supposed to mean. Um, so we feel like Linux is getting more popular, but we have no data to actually show, prove it, or tell if it's more popular. This is also a major issue in bug reporting and everything else where we're not getting data on what are the computers people are using because that's where you would want your developers spending their time to enhance the machine to make sure, hey, if most of our users are using AMD CPUs, let's make sure we do some tweaks there with AMD. If most of our users are using the light version or utilizing these specific things. So there's a very big difference between the telemetry that's being captured from Linux and the telemetry that is being captured by, say, a Google or Microsoft, which is consistent and persistent across everything that you're doing versus something that's just trying to get information on your machine, maybe what apps you have installed and that type of thing. And so I don't have a problem with it being opt-in with the option to opt-out. I do have an issue if they didn't give you any options because even Microsoft has options when you're installing it that allow you to opt out at least partially uh, in some of the data. So, And Microsoft, by the way, is opt-in by default if you go through the installation process, but they have a big screen now that's separate from all the other screens where you can choose to untoggle all of those boxes. So to me, it's kind of a standard that people installing any OS are used to seeing and can just opt out of it. Well, I mean, if, it, if to be clear about the Microsoft thing, it says, do you want to have these set these, these speed settings or the, do you want to have customizations? You can change it and turn it off. So you could, they do give you the option to turn it off, but they make it where it's confusing in the sense of like, if you want to go through this really quickly, just ignore this step. So that's how they do well, it. Well, yeah, and you can't turn it off mm-hmm. entirely. For instance, in some of the options, it says, um, I don't remember the exact wording, but it goes from full information to Microsoft down to basic. There's no off. Right. So you mm-hmm. really yes. truly turn it off like you can say in a Linux installation. The right. point is that this is a pretty normal thing that if you've installed other OSs, you would be used to seeing and being used to opting out of. And I think there's a big difference here again in the type of data, the telemetry data being asked for here. With the Zorn OS, the issue was there was no option at all. Right. Um, they were just taking the data. So you know, again, I think it was a, a misstep on their part that they're going to fix. I have no doubt, but I think there's a big difference there. Yeah, the argument about like well, Zorin has just made a mistake in the sense that we I mean, we don't know if they did it on purpose, but we assume that they didn't do it on purpose because it's they having conversations with them. There's no reason to imply that they would do that on purpose. And, so, and they don't have a track history of doing exactly you know yeah. stuff. Yeah, and and what's really good is um, I've just installed Zorin 15.1, um, the new release. And the question is in there, would you like to send us data? Okay. So you can opt in or opt they've out already, already yeah, as nice. part of the, yeah, they've already fixed it as part of the installation, which is great. That's awesome. So they, but they, that's good feedback, Ethan, because I think a lot of people are, are do take your stance that it shouldn't exist, period. I think we're taking the stance on the idea of for Linux to really grow and for us to be able to go out there and say 
hey, this Linux is really taking a part of a percentage of the market in the desktop or in the server space or anything else. We have to have some kind of data somewhere. Yeah. And if everybody's just opting out, then we're never going to know. It's just one of those things where it's going to look like Linux is still just a niche product. And also trying to conf- to explain to companies and why they should support Linux when we don't have the, the data to say how many people are actually using Linux. They ha- They can just like, you know, fall back to the, well, there's not enough people for us to care about it. And if we don't have the telemetry to understand how many are actually using it, there's really no way for us to tell them that they would do this. So the, the argument about whether telemetry should be done or not, that's pretty much it should be because there's massive benefits. And as long as the choice is given to the user, there's really no issue as far as like morally or ethically, because I think the opt-in versus opt-out is more of a which one feels better but at the same time, and I agree that the opt out have by default an opt in option feels better. But at the same time, there's benefits to like having the opt in because if people ignore it, they don't care in the first place. And if you were saying, well, they didn't read it because they, 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 that it's they still didn't care to read it. So they don't care in general. If they don't care enough to read what they're installing. They don't care about pretty mm-hmm. much anything at that point. Uh, but they give an option to choose whether or not to do it. And I think the morals part and the ethics part is as long as there is a choice that it's covered in the morals and ethics. If they don't give a choice at all, that's pro- that's problematic. But if they give mm-hmm. a choice and the choice legitimately turns it off, unlike Microsoft, there's no problem in my opinion. And I think that, that and also more importantly, if someone chooses to opt out, then you get the information about they chose to opt out. If they just leave it blank, then you don't know if they didn't they didn't want it to be opted in or not. You just get nothing. So I think there is a, there's many values to having it in that structure. So writer says in our, in our patron chat, asked the question about one of the issues he had wasn't so much that Zorn was getting telemetry, but that it was pinging the server allegedly every hour. So I, I kind of have the same question. We covered this a little bit last week, but what are your thoughts on that? To me, this whole idea is you capture the data up front. Maybe every time I update, you grab a snapshot to see what system I'm on. But this mm-hmm. idea that things are pinging constantly every hour, every day, seems pretty over the top to me. Yeah, well, I agree. Well, with that. one thing that people seem to have, have forgotten about, or maybe nobody ever brought it up, but Endless OS actually takes statistics on how long you have applications open and how often you use them. Now, the argument will be, well, with Endless OS, you're never connected to the internet because that's the whole point of it. You give it to somebody, but the minute you connect, it, ups, it uploads all that telemetry data and they actually gather how often you've been using the application. Now, as long as they tell you about it, I can appreciate that because they, they give you this like 16 gig ISO or whatever it is. Now, if two thirds of the software is never, ever opened, then they know that the next ISO they could produce, they can perhaps change it out for something else and they'll eventually get to learn what the users are using. But nobody made a fuss about that. So why are they making a fuss about Zorin? Well, honestly, I didn't even know about the endless thing. I didn't know about it either. That's why I didn't make a fuss about it. I don't think there's enough. I think there's a big community out there utilizing Zorin, and it happened to be getting super popular right at the Mm -hmm. time that this kind of information broke. Whereas endless, you know, I really don't know much about it, but there wasn't a huge popularity there that I've ever heard of where people would probably bring it up. It's kind of like if, if Ubuntu does something, it's going to blow up in the news faster than anybody else because they're so big. 
I mean, it's just, it's, it's kind of a natural thing that you're going to pay more attention to it than somebody who's much, much smaller. I, I do feel like uh, Ethan is right in one way that this becomes a slippery slope. And I'm wondering if this pinging frequency is not the slippery slope of, hey, okay, we've all accepted that we can give some telemetry and this is good because it's going to give them ability to actually know who's using, what they're using the system on, all the things we talked about. But now we're going, now they're starting to add things like, well, let's ping every hour. Let's ping every 15 minutes. What if we add in some of this other stuff where it just starts getting into a situation mm-hmm. where, well, we're back to Microsoft Windows. I think it's, it's, it's fair to say that the telemetry should be done only in a process where you connect to their servers when you manually choose to connect to their servers. So if you install a system and you do, you're going to be installing packages from their, their servers and to do that. And at that, at that point, totally fine. And when you update your system to get new packages from their servers, they do the same thing there. I think that's because you could decide when that happens. And as long as they give the choice between uh, doing it or not doing it, and they structure it so that when you manually activate an update, then you get it. I think that's the best approach. I think what we need to do is have some of the developers on either from Ubuntu or Zorn and ask them the question of what the benefit is of having things ping on a constant basis that they're hoping to achieve there. Cause to well, me, I mean, Ubuntu doesn't do like, that. So I, that doesn't matter. It's yeah, like, but I, I feel like, I mean, do we really need to ask somebody to get the answer to that? I mean, when you have something that's pinging, well, maybe you know something that they're gaining from that, that why you would have to have that every hour. I don't know why you would need that information every single well, how Okay. So just playing devil's advocate for a moment. How do you tell the difference between somebody who downloaded an ISO, burned it to a, a flash drive and then threw it on their desk and the guy who's yes. using the operating system every day? Right. Mm. Like if it's pinging every hour, you know, that operating system is online. And again, I don't I comply, you know, I think all four of us agree 100 percent that it should be in the user's choice. But mm. as it relates to canonical and stuff like that, I have started s- sending user data in because I have talked to them and found out how valuable it is to them. And they do make decisions like, hey, we have this many million desktop Linux users. We should try this particular change before we roll out you know, any particular change and say, well, it has to be this particular way from here on out. And then they can try that in the non-LTS. And then when it doesn't work, they roll it back and go, okay, listen, mm-hmm. we tried Wayland support. It mucked up a bunch of people's desktops in the non-LTS, so we're not going to do that in the LTS. And the only reason that they're able to make those decisions is because they have those metrics. And so mm-hmm. if you don't provide those to the company, then, they don't, then they're making blind information. So I think it should be the person's choice, but I think there. I think it would be a understatement to say that there's no value, or there is little value, or we don't understand what the value is in having these machines phone home with limited information. I think. I think pretty easily we can extrapolate why that's beneficial. And I mean, statistically, the, real- the example you gave there is. I don't know that statistically that's going to validate saying you need to ping every hour because there's some users who download it, burn it to a USB, and then run it live mm-hmm. in a live session that you wouldn't gain from something that ran every 24 hours or every couple of days that you couldn't extrapolate hmm. that t- same theory out of analytically. Perhaps you're right. I don't know, but it doesn't seem like you're going to have enough of people who would be doing that, that that's going to mess up your statistics. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm wrong. Fair I- enough. I actually think Michael's um, solution is probably the better one if they do want those additional metrics. When you actually run an update, it says, hi, yeah, I'm still connected and I'm still running your software. Thanks very much. Yeah, And that would be much more acceptable. If people do it automatically, then they will automatically get the pings. Those people who do it manually, they'll manually get the pings. So then people will ask the question, oh, hang on, I've opted in 
But are you going to ask me, do I want to opt in every time I do an update, which will slow the process down? So it gets all very, 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 very yeah, messy. If you're, so, if you're willing to do it in the first place, I think you're willing to do it more. But I think you should mm-hmm. have, there should be yeah. a limit to how often it's, it's asking you. Because I think the doing it on any time-based is, is unnecessary. Because if they're doing it to find out what hardware you have, it is very unlikely you're going to change your hardware every hour. Even with Ryan's <laughs> rolling style of getting new hardware, it is definitely not going to be every it's hour. True. So it's at least every he's close days. though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, once a month maybe, but still at the same time, you're going to update your system more often. You typically, so that should be enough. Mm-hmm. I agree. Good question though, Ethan. We appreciate you sending it in. Thank you. We love hearing from our worldwide community. We have many ways for your voice to be heard. You can send us a short email or a video that may get incorporated into the show. Send your video links or emails to comments at destinationlinux.org. Last week, we launched our first giving back campaign, partnering with freegeek.org. Educating the community, leveraging the power of open source, closing the digital divide and reducing e-waste are all important issues. And we as a community can be part of the solution. So please take some time today to visit destinationlinux.network and learn about how you can get involved. Already, we've had some extremely generous monetary donations and many people rounding up some of their computer hardware not in use to donate to an amazing course. The entire DLN network of shows is supporting this cause and we will hope you will help us bring awareness and support to this organization. Ubuntu has released their new user survey. It's out to the community, and this time they want to hear your story. With the upcoming release of 20.04, the new LTS that's on the horizon in April, Ubuntu is looking to get feedback from the community on how you use Linux and what features you're interested in and seeing in the future. Now, the survey just takes about 10 minutes to complete, and it's a great opportunity to have your voice heard. As a general rule of thumb, try to get the emotion out of your response and give a clear, direct answer to their questions so that they can properly organize and tally and and turn into metrics what the feedback is. Now, most surveys that come out, they come out, they run for a few weeks, and then they're done. And by the time anybody finds out about them, it's too late to even participate. Well, this survey is different because it lasts until January 10th, and that's really appreciated. But what that means is if you're a user of Ubuntu, if you're a user of the free Linux operating system, and you want the Canonical, the company who makes Ubuntu, to be aware of your frustrations and or the things that you appreciate, then now is the time for you to reach out to them and let them know what things are going well and what things they should be working on because they have a limited time, resources, and money that they can spend on these things. And so they did what the what any good community member would do, which is they reach out to the community and they say, hey, we have a certain amount of resources. We have a certain budget. We have a certain amount of technical problems that we can solve. So what would be important to you in the next five years? 2004 is a, a resounding success from the very people that use it. And so we want to... First of all, thank Canonical for doing this, um, but also encourage you to go out and, and actually take the survey because once once uh, once compiled, they're also going to be sharing these results with the public. So again, this is another example of a true open source community member conducting and spending their own business money to further the development of an open source project inside and in front of the community. And so if you're looking for a simple way to get involved, if you've ever said to yourself, I would like to give back to the open source community, but I don't have a lot of money and I don't have any development skills and I just, I don't really know what to do. Well, take 10 minutes out of your day, take 10 minutes of your time and provide Canonical with some of the feedback that they're looking for so that the next person that comes to use 2004 doesn't get hit by the same bug that you got hit with and or 
Canonical knows, hey, this is a thing that's working really well. It's very important to people. We should continue to support it. This is great, isn't it? Yeah, I like this because, you know, one of the comments that I, I think was from Popey or Martin was talking about it, it randomly, I don't know if it was directly related to the survey, is sometimes they feel like they're in a bubble of feedback. And that happens in any sure. community, right? You let's say you start a new Telegram group up and it's just for Ubuntu. Eventually, everyone comes in and they throw all their issues out, but eventually everyone gets friendly. They get to know each other. You kind of don't want to really put down that product or that issue you have, maybe because you know you understand how much work they're doing and how difficult things are. And all of that stuff happens and you create a little bubble around yourself and your team. And somebody who manages and leads people for a living, this is something that happens quite a bit with teams. You eventually get really close with your team as you work with them long enough and you almost have this bubble of feedback where everyone says, oh yeah, you're a great boss. You don't have anything to work on. Well, there's always something to work on. So you've got to get feedback externally or find different ways to give feedback. And I think that's what Ubuntu is doing here is they're trying to get outside of their bubble and and find different uh, find a different avenue for people to come and give them feedback uh, in different places that maybe aren't a part of their telegram groups or aren't a part of their forums or aren't a part of the normal areas for feedback. And this is really important. And I think they're going to probably, and I love that they're publishing it because I think they're going to probably find some interesting things that they didn't expect here by doing this method where they have an open survey that you go out and fill. And there's a lot of areas in this survey because I took it that allow mm -hmm. you to just add in your comments. So if you've ever done this type of data analysis before, it's really difficult to take people's comments and then aggregate that into something that's tallied, which is why your advice, Noah, of taking out, you know, giving clear, direct responses and taking out emotion like, oh my gosh, I hate this. Like that, none of that's going to get tallied. Um, you know, what is the thing that you want fixed? What is it? What do you want to be done with it? Why is it bothersome? That type of stuff is something that's a little bit uh, easier to tally in the overall results. But this is why Ubuntu in a lot of ways is king. They do things like this. They outreach to the community. They have people that regularly participate in the community. You know, Popey and Martin regularly comment in our Telegram group. They comment in many people's Telegram groups. It just they're mm -hmm. involved. And this mm -hmm. is another way that they're involved. Sure. So have you, so you've actually taken this because one of the frustrating things I sometimes find out about these services, oh, well, it'll only take you 10 minutes. And in 25 minutes, you're still winging your way through the questions. So is it page seven of uh, every 10 questions is a new page and they don't tell you how many pages <laughs> there are. So you don't know how far along in the survey you are. Yeah. So, so what is it like 10, 15 minutes, Ryan? I say absolutely. You could complete this easily in 10 minutes, but it's up to you. If you want to sit there and spend a lot of time contemplating each question and filling out paragraph of information sentences mm -hmm. on each thing which i'll just tell you you know again they're probably going to have tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of responses on this so you you know people aren't going to sit there and read paragraphs mm -hmm. of information they're writing so if you wanted to you could spend more time on it but if you wanted to get through it in 10 minutes you absolutely could do a good job of getting all the things answered in a 10 to 15 minute time frame no problem cool do we want to mention that that maybe people should consider telling them about partnering with amd I, what do you think I put in my survey? That's what I did too. <laughs> Keeping on the Ubuntu theme, a new unofficial flavor of Ubuntu has just been released called Ubuntu Cinnamon. If you're a fan of the Cinnamon desktop but don't want to install it yourself on Ubuntu or you're not a fan of Mint, this might be for you. 
Some differences out of the box is that Ubuntu uh, Cinnamon is based on the 1910 version of Ubuntu, where Mint is based on the LTS version. Additionally, you get Snap support out of the box versus the Flatpak support that Mint offers you out of the box. You also get to choose from a whole suite of wallpapers and other minor tweaks in this implementation. So if you're a Cinnamon and Ubuntu fan, it might be worth looking at. Ubuntu Cinnamon seems to be working towards the goal of becoming an official flavour. Um, so what does everyone think about this? Um, are you a Cinnamon lover or is it just one of those desktops that you've sort of come to the opinion, oh, well, it's Mint, so therefore I don't particularly like it? Well, I like Mint, but I don't get this particular move here because I I just don't know. This is one of the things going back that there's not a lot of excitement when you have a new flavor of Ubuntu, not that this is an official flavor, but something like this where they're just taking Ubuntu and throwing a desktop on it. And I know they're doing more than just that. And the people behind this seem to be very talented and also involved in the community. So I hate saying anything, you know, that may be perceived as negative because that's not my intent. It's just, I, I would rather see something like this in an unofficial move that had something like rolling in it or, you know, mm-hmm. something that brings additional security or different apps or something that brings it some excitement other than, hey, we have another Ubuntu and now it has a cinnamon desktop, which I guess, again, now that I've been experienced with Linux long enough, I would just, if I wanted to use cinnamon, just throw it on Ubuntu and use cinnamon, but that's not an option for everybody. And sure. cinnamon is a great desktop environment, but to me, that's, it's just kind of stomping all over the territory that that's what Mint is kind of for, right? Mm-hmm. But the thing is, if you if you prefer to use Ubuntu over Mint, and this does become an official flavor, because if it was just somebody who was going to put it out there, and it's you know he's going to be allowed to call it Ubuntu Cinnamon, where are you going to go for support for Cinnamon? You're going to shoot off to the Mint desktop where most of the Cinnamon users are, and they're going to go, wait, you're not using Mint, go to Ubuntu because you're using the Ubuntu version of Cinnamon. So I think. They're they're doing the right thing in becoming another flavor, but I can understand your reticence in going, oh, well, it's just another Ubuntu. It's another desktop. Really, what's the point? Um, Who knows how this team might then grow with experience. They start to work with the um, Ubuntu team and then become, you know, the next Martin Wimpress or the next Alan Pope or the next Simon Quigley. So, you know... um, Whilst I'm sort of in a similar vein to you are, I tend to now try and think of that side of things. Because, hey, way back then when people spun off Mint from Ubuntu and everybody said, well, what's the point? Well, look at Mint now. Look how much it has grown. And who's to say that Ubuntu Cinnamon might not grow in the same light? Yeah, and there's also things that... uh with Linux Mint does things that in their their structure of how they do the packages that are different from Ubuntu that could create issues. And that's one of the reasons why for a long time they had that different tier system of what package updates you're doing and that sort of thing. So that there there could be issues created because of their different structure because they're not directly connected to the Ubuntu infrastructure while they still use the infrastructure. So that's what that's why the time shift thing was added so that you can have a a kind of a safety net in the terms of like this different structure. Whereas with Ubuntu Cinnamon, if it is an official flavor, it gets the infrastructure of Ubuntu to help power it. And in a uh, latest, like recently, Martin Rimpress had a, in, in one of the, the Ubuntu podcasts, they mentioned something about how he said that 95% of the work done for Ubuntu Mate 
is done by Canonical and by Ubuntu with the infrastructure as an official flavor. And he was saying that without that don't being done, Ubuntu Mate wouldn't exist. So he wouldn't have been making his own distribution if he had to spend that effort on the 95% of the work versus the 5% of the work. So the the benefit of having an official flavor is not only just being able to, you know, create a distribution that is somewhat unique and different, but also you have the infrastructure provided by Canonical. So, so I you like this move? I think that it's it's I think there's nothing there's nothing wrong with it. I don't think it's a waste no. of time because of the fact that it, there there are some things that I don't think that Mint does properly in the sense of their their packaging con- conflicts with Ubuntu. I think there are issues there, and I don't like how they handle PPAs with the priority issue that they have. But overall, I think that Cinnamon is a really good des- uh, desktop environment, and I think that there's there is some value in having Ubuntu Cinnamon as a as a official flavor if it becomes official. If it's not official, then I would say that there could be some issues there because you don't know about the support and the infrastructure and all that stuff. But if it does become official, that's great. And also, prior to becoming official, they could have code names that are fun like Cinnabuntu. Oh my gosh, Noah, what is your thought on Ubuntu Cinnamon? Honestly, I just don't really see the point. I I like Cinnamon. It's okay as a desktop. I just there is to me and and again, there's no such thing as too much choice. I'm glad there's a lot of people out there. I'm glad that everybody has their own spin on things. That's great. But to me it does seem like there are too many Windows clones that are trying to pop up on Linux, right? Like KDE kind of started that and now we've got XFCE and we have Cinnamon and we you know like Mate. it it just yeah, it just seems like we, we're trying to, uh, to we're trying to crack the same nut like 16 times over and everybody has their own kind of unique way to do it. And I I would never tell anybody, oh, they're wasting their time. They shouldn't do that. Like, that's how we get the best possible product out of there. But I think when you actually look at them, I think if you wanted Ubuntu with the cinnamon desktop, you would just use Mint. And as Michael, I agree with everything Michael said. There are some serious security concerns that I have with uh, with Linux Mint. But at the same time, I think that they have the brand name and the recognition and the track history to just keep that ball rolling. If you want to do something, go help with Linux Mint and don't worry about having Ubuntu Cinnamon. Just let's go ahead and accept that uh, Linux Mint did it. And if we have problems with the way that Linux Mint did it, let's not say things like, well, you haven't done it the same way that all the other flavors did it, and so it wouldn't be consistent. So we can't give your distribution the exact same resources and stuff that it would if we basically redid your distribution in a slightly different way. It just doesn't feel, I don't know, it doesn't feel very open source to me. It doesn't feel very communitive, very community oriented, right? We have an Ubuntu base with the Cinnamon desktop. It's called Linux Mint. And there's a person that has devoted his life and t- a team that has devoted their lives to trying to make that product as good as it can possibly be and they've had some pretty decent success in that it's one of the most popular distributions that are downloaded and referenced why doesn't canonical look over at them and say tap 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 hey you can be an official flavor and your naming is a little different and that's okay because they can't be an official flavor because their infrastructure is massively different in the sense that they still use the core repos but they change so much of their packaging system that it just is not compatible so that's That's why they can't the case though michael i mean they've changed a lot of that those security concerns they've improved no they've they've done workarounds like the 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 adding time shift doesn't solve the issue it just creates a solution as a safety net which overall for users it's fine but the compatibility with ubuntu's infrastructure is still not there so but could they not could could canonical not approach them and say if you change xyz then you can become an official flavor and that is 
Couldn't that be saying the same thing about being, you know, someone saying that, you know, Canonical's trying to take over Linux Mint? You could just twist it a different way and say that they're trying, they're not trying to be a provided it official could be an things. Offer. I'm just saying, it, like, that there's, there's, there could be value in having an Ubuntu Cinnamon because it's different people looking at the different code and on a different. And who says Mint wants to be a part of Canonical? Right. They maybe might they not don't. Want to. And maybe, they, and maybe they don't. But if they don't, then what are we really solving here? Is there real? And do. this is kind of where I'm getting at. Is is there really a group of people out there that are like, man, I really like Linux, and I just really wish I could use a Cinnamon desktop, but gosh darn it, Linux Mint just doesn't work for me. Like, come on. By the time you get to that nuance, that person is installing Ubuntu base, and they're just installing the cinnamon package and then they're installing their desktop that way sure but there also could be benefits not only just on the user side but could be benefits for the development because they could have this like for example you have this new ubuntu cinnamon uh, flavor and they start working on newer packages and a newer base of ubuntu Mm -hmm. and then the Mm -hmm. next lts comes around and they've already solved a lot of issues that the linux mint team haven't even got to yet and they could give them upstream stuff so there could be values there what 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 f- features and functionality would you be willing to forego on Ubuntu proper so that we can have this new niche distro that a handful of people are going to use? Because at the end of the day, There's Canonical's no, resources... Canonical doesn't have any benefit. They don't They don't have to work on these flavors. The, I mean, they, that's not, not how it works. Anyways, I but guess. even if it did, it doesn't matter because the flavors don't work that way. Canonical doesn't take their work and put it in, like, take I, their employees. I understand, I understand that. We just got done talking about why th- that the resources of Canonical fundamentally enable these distributions to do something that they wouldn't be able to do if they were trying to do it on their own, right? Right, but they so already have, have those resources, the- so the only, the only thing they're doing is allowing someone else to use the same resources and using more bandwidth. But as far as the actual work involved, it's still on the community flavor because the flavor is still mm-hmm. made by the community it's on them to make the to do all the work that's why when ubuntu mate was first released it was not an official flavor it was it was retroactively turned into one and then they started and then he started using their infrastructure but he didn't have that mm-hmm. that ability yet so even then you still have the same benefits of they get all the resources but they don't actually have to you know the canonical doesn't have to put anything extra into it they're just providing another community to have the resources Mm-hmm. And the advantage is that we just have one more choice, essentially. And also, there's advantages of this of the potential of finding bugs that Linux Mint team haven't gotten to yet because they base every time they base their system, they're basing on 2004. But if you have the, the Ubuntu Cinnamon basing on the inter, the six month releases as well, there could be things in new packages and conflicts conflicts that they find and improve and various things that they could push back to Linux Mint. There's there's a there's a potential value in the community side on the upstream as well as the users. So there there could be value in that I mean, sense. They could just join the Mint team and help them with Mint directly too. Sure, but also that would only be for LTS versions, you know, because they, they still make their stuff for LTS. And that's why for like a month or two after the LTS comes out, they have to have time to make sure that the finalized version of Ubuntu's LTS is compatible with their Maybe, but infrastructure. if you're a developer, you're not sitting there just on the LTS that you're based on and only testing there. You're future-proofing your distro and pulling down the latest versions to see if they're going to work on this and, kernel. Is in some ways, I, th- I think that's true, yes. But I think that there, there are, because they wait for two years every time they make a new version of Mint, because they'd make every every new like 19 point whatever is still based on the LTS. So they're not mm-hmm. f- fully testing all these other six, the, the differences within six months for releases because there's no reason for them to be doing that when they're only doing the LTS anyway. So I don't know. Well, there you go. It's out there for people to try. Uh, sounds like some people get it. Some people don't. Uh, either way, it doesn't matter. It's out there. They're developing for it. And 
you can go pick up Ubuntu cinnamon if you want to try it. And I know they're trying to working towards becoming an official flavor. So good luck to them. It looks like they have a lot of talented people working on this and we'll see how this kind of rolls out for mint. Is this going to take a lot of uh, users away from mint? Everyone will go the Ubuntu cinnamon route now instead. I guess time will tell. Yep. So another news, Microsoft Teams is now available for Linux. So this week, the Teams app, which is a unified communication and collaboration platform, you get persistent chat with it, video meetings, file storage, all of that has been officially released for Linux in the .deb and .rpm package, at least. Teams is a very popular tool in certain corporate environments. For instance, the company I work for, we utilize Teams regularly. Um, it was a replacement for Skype, was it, back in the day? Not Skype. What was the instant messenger Microsoft had before? MSN Messenger. MSN? Yeah, just MSN Messenger. Just MSN messenger. Yeah. Um, but it's been a replacement for that, and it's a pretty good tool. Uh, there are issues, typical Microsoft-like bugs and things in it, but overall, all of the features for video chat and things are available in Teams. While there are better open-source solutions out there, those who need this for their work can now stay in the Linux family and be able to utilize this tool. So currently in testing technically, so it would be nice to see this come out eventually as say a snap or flat pack. So it works universally on any distro out there. And I'm sure there's work uh, looking into that now. But one thing that I did find interesting and Jason Evangelo in Linux for Everyone kind of mentioned this in either a tweet or in a show about the fact that there was very specific language used in the article saying that this is typically bundled in an office application. So technically this is our first office app on Linux. So leading a lot of people to believe maybe this is the beginning of them beginning to port everything else over from here, because this is a big part. Teams is a big part of their office suite infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So because it can do more than just chat, you obviously have file storage and other things available within this tool. So what is everybody's thought here? We have given Microsoft a little bit of uh, heat in the past saying, well, you know, give us something we could actually use that's relevant here. Microsoft Teams is a lot more relevant than a lot of other things they've delivered. Yeah. In my personal experience, I would say yeah. it is. What's your thought? Well, I think for those people who have the opportunity to use Linux, um, at work and or working from home, um, this is going to be uh, a great addition for them. One of the things that we have to do with our particular company, because they're, they're, they're trying to save money by allowing people working at home and not having to rent expensive office space. So we rely an awful lot on Skype for Business, which, as you know, is part of Office 365. So that allows us to have all of these communications. Now, imagine those companies where they are allowing users to work at home and connecting into their network using Linux. This is just going to make it so much easier to, for them to have that collaboration. Yeah, I made a joke on this about about uh, on Twitter or something like that. I don't remember where I put it, but it was I got feedback, uh, significant feedback about people who would benefit from this a lot for the same reason that Zeb just said, where they work in an office that uses Microsoft Teams and not wanting to use Windows, this allows them to be able to switch over into you just using Linux completely because the only thing that was stopping them was using this Microsoft Teams thing. I'm one of them. Potentially, this will allow me to get rid of the last Windows machine in here and move over to it because a lot of the company, company I work for, a lot of the work that they do is based out of collaboration and everything through the Teams tool. So it, it's 
a really interesting move here that could allow a lot of people to have a Linux machine instead of a Windows machine. Yeah. But Noah, I heard some uh, reservation there. So what's your thoughts on this? You you guys pretty much covered what I was going to say. So I, I, I would just kind of echo you know what you guys said. The only thing I would probably add is this. I don't look so much for the end result. What I look for is motivation. Why is it companies make the decisions that they make? And when I look at Microsoft Teams being deployed and I ask about motivation, my thought process goes something like this. They have people that are out there doing development work and they want those people to use a Microsoft product. And if they don't support Linux, then the people that are doing the development, even if it's for Microsoft themselves, aren't going to be on Microsoft Teams and they're going to use something like Slack because it is operating system agnostic. And then when you look at the way that it actually is implemented, where they don't use any of the window styling that comes with your theme or your distribution. They custom do everything themselves because they want it to look Windows E and Microsoft E. Do you really look at that and say to yourself, well, yeah, that's that's Microsoft really putting it out there for Linux, or is it that's Microsoft pushing their product to everybody, even Linux, because you're going to use a Microsoft product no matter what operating system you're on because that's the new Microsoft loves Linux. It just, you know what I mean? Where's the intention? Mm-hmm. What are they actually looking for? I mean, what are they actually aiming for? Are they trying to. It's probably just to get a bit more people using Teams. I mean, I, I think that that's it's definitely exactly. I, am I supposed to be thankful or fall over, grabbling at the knees that, oh, Microsoft is so great to us Linux users, or am I supposed to say, oh, there's one more one more example where uh, code gets pushed out to Linux, but it's because it's beneficial to Microsoft, not because it's beneficial to Linux per se. Let me let me ask you this: Do you think people believe when they're using, say? Visual Studio from Microsoft, which is a very popular IDE that Microsoft has released for Linux and Microsoft Teams, that suddenly they're they're because they're in Linux that they're not giving all of the telemetry data back to Microsoft. Meaning because they're installing these Microsoft apps in Linux, they believe, okay, well, my telemetry is safe because it's open source and it's on Linux. Do you think people are are having that because I'm starting to think that based on some conversations that I've seen in chat that people believe because they're installing these Microsoft products in Linux that the telemetry issues aren't there. The telemetry issue, I mean, you have to look at the specific application, right? And I'm the kind of crazy idiot that that sits there and hooks Wireshark up and actually looks at what the stuff is doing. In fact, I spent right over there, if you look on my workbench, you can see that little switch that's hooked up to that little NVR Synology. The reason that's there is because there's a switch port that's monitored, and I am watching every single packet that comes out of that box, and I want to know where it's going. And I'm looking to see if it's resolving any addresses in Taiwan, since Synology is a Taiwanese manufacturer. I want to know if any of that stuff is calling home. And if it is, I'd like to know when it's happening and how often and all of those kinds of things. And what I found thus far is that it's just sending information about my notifications. And so if we start looking at Microsoft Teams and actually looking at what it's actually doing, then we'll know this software is calling out or, or doing this or the other. But I think there's a good argument to be made, a solid argument to be made, that if you're using a proprietary software solution, even if it does call home and that's running on Linux, you're better off because at least when you shut that software down, you're not continuing to send those data metrics to Microsoft. Whereas if I'm running Microsoft Teams on Windows 10, now all of a sudden I have two problems. I have the actual software package, which is calling home, but then I also have my base operating system that even if I'm not doing anything on my computer, I'm just sitting there browsing the internet. It's sending a certain amount of information back to Microsoft. So I agree Mm -hmm. With the with the mentality that yeah, I think they are safer if you are if you're running proprietary software on Linux because at least the core of your PC is secure and trustworthy. Mm-hmm. 
I think he's. I don't. I don't agree that it's. It's. It is safer. You in don't general. know what teams is sending. No, no. What Noah said isn't wrong, but you don't know what teams is actually sending. You assume that it's just. Sending I will by the end of next week about that app, but it really could be pulling an entire advertiser ID profile, pulling browsing history. It could be doing all kinds of things behind the scenes, and I think people assume because it's running on Linux that that's not possible, but that's actually not the case. It very well once you execute that application could be going behind the scenes and pulling data from other applications, creating when you type. The, the time when you typed sudo in front of the install command, that was when you made your decision to let Teams do its thing, right? Exactly. Yeah. And also, let's want people to use VS Codium instead of VS Code. So, you know, there's that. But at the same time, I think that there's there's problems with the structure. As well. Unfortunately, people think that just by using Linux that they're, they're going to be safe no matter what they use. And that's definitely not true mm-hmm. because if you install something that's right. not kosher then it's still going to be doing whatever random malicious thing it's doing no i'm not saying teams is doing that i'm not even making that claim i haven't checked but i think somebody needs to do what noah's doing and hook up some wireshark there and inspect those packets because right would i be shocked if an article came out and said hey by the way they're pulling an entire profile and everything uh when you do this installation and you accepted that when you skipped that screen that had a privacy policy on there i would not be shocked one bit mm-hmm. no i would love for you to do that dude I listen. The switch is already set up for doing it for the Synology. As soon as I'm done, I'll throw Teams on. Fascinated to know if Teams is pulling. Absolutely. So up next in the show, there's some interesting information from Canonical, and this is that they are sponsoring the WSL conference. So if you're one of those excited about WSL, you will also be excited to know that Canonical is sponsoring a WSL event at Microsoft. Microsoft's not sponsoring Canonical. Canonical sponsoring Microsoft. Right. Yes. Interesting. We'll see if it makes sense. Uh, announcing it will be a featured sponsor. The conference takes place in March and will be for devs, enthusiasts, and users over the two-day period. So there's been a uh, there's been quite a few people giving talks at, at the at the at this conference, and there will be also be a deep dive in the new WSL2 based Docker desktop for Windows, along with a demo for WSL integration with Visual Studio and JetBrains. The conference is free, and but space is limited, limited, so head over to the WSL conference website to register before March 10th and 11th so you can be there. You and sound excited about this, Michael. Sure, why not? So <laughs> some in the community are getting concerned about Canonical investing its resources in WSL, which makes sense because as in, you know, it's day one I was concerned about. Others feel it is going to be help bringing people to Linux. And we would want to know what, what everybody thinks about this because this is such a – it's an interesting topic. How about that? So what do you all think? Has uh, Hades frozen over? I feel like – I mean, it's weird that Canonical is sponsoring a Microsoft event. What is included in the sponsoring I could not find anywhere. I don't know if anybody's had any more success. No, Are I they couldn't find it either. for the event at Microsoft? No. Are they spending cash resources to to be at Redmond to do this or is sponsoring just like – well, we're setting up some computers and we're going to have people there to do conferences and help them maintain stuff. I hope it's the latter because I think Microsoft's got a lot a lot of money. They really don't need canonical sponsoring an event for this, but it's interesting. WSL is getting way more popular. It's continuing to gain in popularity. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't know. I would rather hear what Noah and folks have to say. I think everybody knows pretty much where I stand on this. I've been pretty yeah. clear. Uh, just, just quickly from my standpoint, is it is WSL really intended for those developers who need access to um, Linux type tools who have to work on uh, Microsoft, or what? What's what's the what's the main purpose for Canonical doing this WSL stuff? 
I mean, the purpose of WSL is basically that is a way for people for it's a way for Microsoft to provide tools that they wouldn't normally have to people who need Linux tools, but for some reason don't want to use Linux. So they use Microsoft and they get the tools anyway. So that it makes sense. It, it's as far as business decision, it's good for Microsoft to give people to not leave Windows. Great for Microsoft. Um, so such a good thing. For yeah, Microsoft it's really smart on their part. It makes no sense to me why anyone would like. And it's not even just Canonical. I mean, Canonical is doing this in addition to working on a WSL. But Red Hat also has stuff. Uh, SUSE has stuff in WSL. I mean, even Kali Linux has a version that you can get in WSL. So You're not wrong. So I don't know why we as a community are helping them although i don't but, know about the red hat why do you say there's red hat i think oh you mean fedora that's what yeah, you're talking but about. also red hat makes fedora so it's it's a yeah, thing yeah. i was just trying to think i don't remember seeing red hat as an option in wsl but no nah. i think yeah, yeah fedora is in there so it's just more of a situation like why are these companies helping uh, wsl become a thing to make linux not necessary I, that's what it seems like it's for its purposes and i get why when microsoft is doing it but i don't get why we're helping Noah. I I, I think I, again devil's advocate because for the most part I think if I was if I was asked just on the street I'd probably give a very similar answer to Michael. Just trying to play devil's advocate a little bit though, uh, you know, is it not beneficial to Canonical that if Microsoft is going to develop their products on Linux, that's pretty much a given at this point. They need the stability, the security, and the flexibility and 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 power flex of Linux. So that's probably going to happen. The only question is, are they going to use Ubuntu? Or are they going to develop their own in-house Linux? It's not like it's above Microsoft to hire a bunch of developers and just say, hey, guess what? Now MS Linux is going to be a thing and we're going to develop it. Or, you know, we'll just buy Canonical out because we have the money to do it. Those things are possibilities down the road, right? So WSL gives us the ability to control to a certain extent what features are available and how they're implemented and make sure that the experience is decent on Windows so that when people go to use it, they don't just go, oh, real Windows does this, but when you go into WSL, all of a sudden it's just like this hacked together thing. It doesn't quite work right and and whatever else. No, we are community players. We uh, we advocate for maximum absence of coercion and allow people to do whatever it is they want. That's why the GPL exists. You can do what you want with the with the software. And so when Microsoft says, hey, we want to take advantage of this open source thing, we'll go ahead and give it a shot. Let's see if we can integrate it into Windows. Our answer to the community is what? No get out of our sandbox and go make your own or mm. no, this is the great thing about open source. You want to use it, knock yourself out. Here you go. Here's the source code. Hey, would you like some help? We will send our developers to help you embed this thing into your crappy operating system and breathe nice. some much needed life into it. Like but that to me doesn't seem like a bad approach. Is it a massive backhanded slap in the face of Microsoft? Hey, your OS sucks. Yes, it is. But the people that are actually using it, you're making the developer's life better. I, I would point you to the direction of Linus Torvalds when he bumps into this guy at Microsoft in the elevator and they, they ask him, well, oh, Linus, what do you actually think? Does Microsoft really love Linux? He's like, hey, listen, I talked to the developers. They seem like they're Linux-loving people. They seem to really like Linux. I agree with them. Seems like they like Linux. Seems like it's a new Microsoft. Kumbaya. Let's all get along, Right. I, I think there is some value to that. Whether or not I would, if I were in charge of Canonical, sponsor a Microsoft event in which we are going to make sure that the experience is as smooth as humanly possible, not using our operating system and using something else that we've hacked on, I don't know. But I agree at a, at a basic premise that there is some value 
in canonical supporting the decision of Microsoft to embed Linux into Windows. Well, and who knows? Maybe eventually they'll just go, hey, that works better. Let's just dump the NT kernel and just base everything on WSL. The argument I've heard, not saying this is the only argument, but the main argument that I hear as a rebuttal to when I have had issues with this WSL thing in the past and still continue to to today is that, well, if more developers start utilizing Linux, this is a great way to get Linux exposed to other people out there. Mm-hmm. And it made me think, well, that's interesting, you know, because I've heard this argument in several other applications as well, that, well, if we expose people to it, then, you know, they'll want to use Linux in other places. And maybe these developers who wouldn't have touched Linux or known about it before will go, hey, I'm running Linux here. Let me uh, now switch my entire machine from Windows to Linux, even though everything I have, including all the software and hardware support and everything I need is in this Windows Linux hybrid. I'm just going to go switch full Linux now. We haven't gotten to the point on the Linux desktop that we're ready to start saying we can take on Windows and, and compare feature for feature. What Microsoft has done with PowerShell is slowly make PowerShell more and more and more powerful to where it's getting very close, not there yet, getting very close to some of the power that we've had in the terminal for a long time, and they're continuing to invest resources to improve it. So PowerShell becomes a big player. Now you have all of the advantages that you would have in Linux built into the terminal without the GUI. There's no GUI in WSL. I mean, you can set up kind of a separate server hybrid thing to try to emulate a desktop environment and stuff, but it takes a lot of work. I've tried it. It's not easy to get that GUI option to work in WSL or WSL2. And so most people, their experience is going to be, hey, Linux is this terminal thing you know, that I can type and drop some, you know, servers or drop some dockers or whatever I need to do from a developer standpoint, and then go into Windows where I have this beautiful menu system and and it can click and drag and do everything that I need. I don't think this puts Linux in a great spotlight. And I often link it to Android that how many times is when we were trying to really say, hey, there's so many Linux users out there. Do we go to, when people ask what is Linux and go, hey, do you have an Android device? Yeah. Oh, you're using Linux. But see, that person never made that step. They never made that connection before. That, mm. That's Linux. It never goes any further than that. And it never goes any further than that. And, and so they didn't make that connection. They were using Linux. And therefore, that's why we kind of dropped that. Everybody uses Linux. It's everywhere. But nobody knows that. Nobody knows they're using Linux. They don't care. And I think the devs are the same thing. They're not going to go, oh, my gosh, this Ubuntu is this Ubuntu I'm installing. Is this special whole operating system that's graphical and beautiful and everything else. They're never going to see that part. They see a terminal. And that's I don't know, man. I, I, I get what you're saying, and I agree to a certain extent that when you have so much obfuscation to the actual operating system, then you get to a point where, yeah, okay, fine. Everybody that's running Android is running Linux. A big whoop. It's not like it's not like a go to meeting. Well, I don't know, just pick your app that, that exists on Android. It's not like because they make an Android app, now all of a sudden we have that software available on Linux, or that the software manufacturer gives two hoots about Linux. They just Android is popular mobile operating system, so people want to use it. So I, I get what you're saying there. At the same time, we are talking about the developers. That's who's using WSL. And I think those people are the people that currently are dual booting their systems to Linux and Windows. And I think this is Microsoft's attempt to try to rein that back in just a little bit. I don't think you're anybody that actually cares about Linux. They're still going to install it. So I think we're talking about a very small niche. The developers who have a primarily Windows workflow that need some Linux for some things, do we want to make their experience smoother? Do we not want to make their experience smoother? That's the question we really have to ask. 
I mean, I don't know I that I have a good answer. To all that. of the answers on Linux desktop, I think, for any developer out there, there are very few circumstances people could paint today to say that can't be done on Linux. So I would much rather have that developer completely go to Linux than just find the solution in there. And I also think there's probably a lot of people that tune into a podcast or watch a YouTube video or stumble upon one of my videos where I talk about hardware and then my next video that they're interested in, like the new motherboard or AMD, and they don't care about the operating system. And then the next thing they hear me talking about Ubuntu or a distro that I'm on, and they go into their Microsoft store and say, hey, I've seen that Ubuntu thing. Let me install it. And boom, they install it and they get a terminal and go, this is what he's talking about. What is this stupid thing? And then close it down. And I, so I don't know that we're gaining anything here. I know people are saying it. They're saying we could gain stuff here and developers are going to help. And I'm sure it does help developers because they don't have to leave their Windows infrastructure to go there. But I don't think you're getting that inverse opportunity to take those developers and then make them completely Linux. Now, has it happened? I'm sure. But I don't think in the, in the grand scheme of things, those developers are in mass leaving Windows and going installing Linux once they see WSL in action. And I think Microsoft is using this time in between where they have lost the potential market to build upon their tools like PowerShell to make it as effective and eventually, if not better, than what we have in the terminal. So is WSL a bit of a decoy on on behalf of Microsoft to say that we are Linux, you know, sort of a, a stool pigeon, so to speak? I mean, it could be. It could be a situation where maybe Linux is going to, or Windows is going to base their next distro on a Linux kernel. There's that. People are saying Microsoft could buy Canonical. We were saying all these different things out there, but I think all of us are sitting there scratching our head going, I don't know. I don't know what to think about this because I don't see the the counter arguments I hear do not make me go, oh, that that's the path. That makes perfect sense. In fact, none of this does. They're investing a lot in PowerShell, a lot. They have a lot of videos coming out. They have a lot of training programs that get sent out to me in my email at work about, hey, learn PowerShell, learn PowerShell. They're doing courses that they're partnering with big training companies to do PowerShell. And PowerShell's getting powerful. This is no longer a joke. Is it as powerful as the terminal yet? No, but it is getting so much better than anything it ever was before. I think they're learning. They're learning from the people who are now sitting in their office teaching them why the terminal's powerful and saying, hey, we could do that in PowerShell. Eventually, I highly doubt there's going to be a case where Windows just goes away. I think there's going to be a case where Windows becomes as powerful as, you know, takes the advantages that Linux has and incorporates them right into things like PowerShell. Yeah, or the WSL thing, because it's like they're saying that they heart Linux and they, they I guess in a way you could say that it's kind of true because they heart using it in their own system so they don't have to get people to leave their system. So, yep. Does that- I mean, but who knows? Maybe this is all just good. Good vibes and happy stuff. We'll see. Something we've talked a lot about on the show is the disconnect between graphic drivers released into the kernel and the time when a distro finally gets them included into their latest release. Well, turns out we're not the only ones talking about this because of the Linux Plumbers Conference. Daniel Vetter uh, delivered a talk about this issue and how this is something that absolutely needs to be addressed. Now, we'll have a link to the talk in the show notes so you can check those out over at destinationlinux.network. Click on the Destination Linux show, and you'll get all of the show notes, and that'll have all of the articles that we've referenced. But for those that are interested, this is at the core of the discussion, and the process is broken down. Intel and AMD, who release their graphic drivers into the stack, are often left waiting maybe three to six months, or even longer sometimes, in so-called stable distros. They go ahead and pick them up in either a new release or an HWE patch. Now, 
it's an unreliable way of delivering graphics drivers, and it impacts not just new hardware, but also older hardware as well. He did start out with lots of good news, though, so it's not all bad news from Vulkan to bridge and panel drivers have all massively improved in the last 10 years. The problem is delivery. The suggestions offered by Daniel Vetter include things like a stable kernel API for driver modules, so you can upgrade the drivers and kernel independently. Um, and this is where Android is headed. So pay distros or OS vendors to backport the drivers. That's another way that you could accomplish the same thing. And because there's no standard LTS kernel and the versions used across distros vary so heavily, Daniel states, the cheapest way to support this entire madness is to completely ignore upstream and just write helper libraries provided by the kernel subsystems, completely defeating the supposed benefit of upstream code. And so then they ask the question, what does the panel here believe would help? And I guess I'll be very honest with you. This is the kind of stuff that is so far over my head that I have a really hard time mm -hmm. uh, even really grasping what these issues are. For me, it's like, Kernel driver, kernel graphic drivers for me are essentially like the, the car keys. I put the car key in the ignition, I pray, and then I turn, and hopefully the car runs. Uh, with graphic drivers, I install my operating system, I boot the thing up, and hopefully I see something. Um, so I guess I would I would kind of kick this over to Ryan just a little bit. What are your thoughts about this, Ryan? Is is this something that is is a massive problem? And if so, are these viable solutions? What's your thoughts? I think they're interesting solutions that I haven't thought about Um before, I mean, we, we've talked about the issue. I don't know that we've ever said this is the solution because really you need the, the individuals who work on these distros day in and day out to kind of figure that out. But the problem is, you know, you've got Intel next year currently, but also next year going to be releasing their independent GPUs who are going to release their drivers into the kernel stack. You have AMD that does that today. But even taking this out of just graphic drivers, you have tons, and we've talked about this a lot, so I'll just be quick, tons of manufacturers out there from Logitech and everyone else releasing their device drivers into the kernel. The problem is this stuff doesn't get picked up. Um, mm -hmm. and it takes way too long in between for it to get picked up to be moved into a distro. So, you know, you're one of those people who've been waiting for seven years to get a new video card. Finally, Intel releases this new GPU. You go to the store, you buy it, you plug it into Ubuntu or any of the LTS distros, it doesn't matter. And you're not going to have any video. Nothing's going to work. And then you say, well, I'm going to release, I'm going to wait until the next Ubuntu release. In the meantime, I'll run Windows with WSL probably. Um, and you wait for the next Ubuntu release and maybe Intel or AMD didn't get their drivers in place in time enough for uh, Ubuntu to pull them in. And so it gets missed again. So now you're at like, what, a year before you get this in. And hopefully maybe one of them will do an HWE patch in between to pull those drivers in, but that doesn't always happen either. We've seen mm -hmm. this time and time again um, recently with AMD releasing new hardware where the, these distros don't work with them. Now, some distros like Pop! OS go out there and they independently will fix certain issues um, and other, other distros will just plain ignore it and say, well, there's just not enough community there for it and you will get it in a future release. I think this is a problem. This is, a, this is an issue that has to be addressed. We have a lot of great things that are happening in this world from, like was mentioned in article, Vulkan and panel drivers and things that have improved vastly in Linux in the last 10 years. We do not have a good solution for how we deal with drivers independent of the kernel. And mm -hmm. so, you know, Google, Android is headed this direction. At least that's what they're stating, where they're going to be able to basically implement 
updates and patches independent of the whole operating system to attempt to keep Android up to date on different manufacturers instead of waiting for those manufacturers to eventually release, if they do at all, support for the latest improvements into the OS and things like that, which has created a huge fracturing system in Android. We actually have that fracturing here in Linux too, because there is, as was mentioned in this talk, there is no set. If you say go use an LTS kernel, which one? There is no set mm. LTS kernel that's a standard for everybody. And you know, yeah. I, I think that we are also very much stuck on this idea that not a rolling distro has to roll everything, number one, which is not the case. And number two, that it has to be unstable. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think people are stuck on that idea because they've been in Linux for so long and they've always heard the thing that LTS is where it's stable and anything else that's rolling in between or moving instantly means break. I don't think that's the case anymore. And I think we sell ourselves short selling, saying that case that stuff has to sit there for six months before we can call it stable. I don't buy it. I'm not buying it one bit. So I'm happy that somebody else out there independently is talking about this because we've been talking about it. We get a lot of people that disagree with us on it, but apparently it's not just an issue that we're talking about here on the show. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm very much like you, um, Noah. It goes completely over my head how all this sort of stuff works. And in the past, um, I've relied on UKUU to get me the latest kernel so that I can then just have the latest NVIDIA driver. But things are getting so complicated that even UKUU at the moment cannot give me a working 5.4 kernel that works with NVIDIA. I get left with one screen at 1024, and I have to keep reverting back to the 5.3 kernel. So even these really clever guys who make these wonderful tools and allow us to hack our systems are finding difficulty in keeping up with this technology. So it's really down to the big boys um, to do it properly for us, the users. Yeah, that's true. And I think that the the solution is is very, very complicated, obviously, but the 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 ABI structure is an interesting approach, and it's kind of the same way that Google wants to have the Linux kernel. They want to bring in the mainline Linux kernel into Android. That's one of the reasons they wanted an API an ABI to do that. And the reason it's valid in the same time that it's also kind of problematic because it it holds back the the, the progress and the innovation. But it's, but if they were able to have an LTS that was uh, it's weird because they have multiple LTSs and they and they support these LTS for a very long time, up to like six years or so. Yeah. So if they were to have like one AB, uh, ABI that's structured to a single LTS that is available for that amount of time, but they also continually build on top of that one rather than just doing maintenance. Because the, the problem with this, the term stable release is has nothing to do with stability and it never has and it never will because that word only means static movement. So that means if you have a security vulnerability, you'll get an update. If you have basically anything else, you're not going to get an update. That's what stable means in terms of uh, Debian when it turns to the, the kernel. It has it's, it, The word just means static or not moving. They don't mm -hmm. refer to it as stability. And that's the biggest issue is because everybody else looks at that word meaning stability and they don't because that's not how they're using it. But they don't ever specify that's not how they're using it. So it creates mm -hmm. this confusion with a lot of people. So I think this, this the static approach of an LTS kernel would be good, uh, or having some kind of separate thing where the modules can be injected 
in a different style, sort of like how you can install the graphics drivers with NVIDIA. Maybe you could have a, a separate thing where you can just do a plug and play structure. I'm not sure how complicated that would be. I assume pretty, mm -hmm. pretty, pretty complicated, but I don't think any of us know of the solutions and hopefully they will be able to like vetters suggestions of doing these types of options. Hopefully well, yeah, they'll find I think one. The NVIDIA thing, which is one of your suggestions I thought was a great one at first. It, it seems to be backfiring. I'm hearing nothing but, and Zeb, you could maybe confirm some of this. Well, you kind of just did, but I'm hearing nothing but people saying there's issues now with NVIDIA and going through the Reddit support forums. It seems like whatever has been done recently has messed up a lot of people's computers where they're getting resolution issues. They're getting the no boots, black screen issues. They seem to be coming back around and NVIDIA releases through that driver method. So that mm -hmm. doesn't seem to be I think that's I think that's different because they also have all their stuff proprietary. Closed so they they're yeah. trying to make sure everything they have to do everything themselves versus also utilizing the core of the kernel. But at the same time, they also not even just the proprietary aspects. They also have a problem where they have their own particular term of like doing certain things that are not in the kernel. For example, when like the whole thing about Wayland not supporting NVIDIA for so long had nothing to do with Wayland making a decision. It was because NVIDIA insisted on using their particular structure in order to make support work for Wayland. But Wayland didn't want to do the work for them and NVIDIA didn't want to do the work. So it created a problem, which is the EGL stream issue. So that problem existed because NVIDIA insisted on doing it their way. So if they're having issues now, it could be just because they insist on doing something that isn't compatible and therefore creating problems rather than yeah. the actual like third party installing stuff. Mm -hmm. And just one small caveat to the sort of like the, the, the static stable thing that you were talking about, your stall behind you is very static, but it doesn't look stable at all. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's because you have to sit stand on it. I hate you guys. If you if you can make that decision, I mean, some people are confused if they want to sit or stand. So, so now we come to the gaming section, and I was actually quite looking forward to this uh, this week because I thought, oh, something where we can play a game and learn how to type as well. However, I clicked on the link. You're welcome. And I thought, do you know what, Ryan? Your poor Passion. graphics deserve a poor reply. So bear with me just one moment while I prepare my system to give you Wait. and the guys here a reply. So just one second. Perhaps you view gaming as a waste of time when you could be learning a new skill or talent. But what if you could combine the two? Game and improve a skill. Type night is the answer to all your roles. Move aside maybe speaking as this pixel art fighting game will improve your typing skills and let you get your game on. Walk through a graveyard of enemies and type the words above the enemies' heads to kill them dead. You also have the option of importing your own dictionary of words into the game, so perhaps you could put some bash scripting command in there as well to help you memorize them. Overall, for $3.99, I'd rather buy a Big Mac. You can't go wrong and you can improve your words type per minute while still slaughtering some undead. Zev, I'm shocked. You really didn't like this? You know, you nope. learned something while you kill people. Right? Yeah, I learned ne never to trust Ryan again. Well, no. <laughs> Look, I know you love these type of games. In fact, there's more. There's another one that just came out called um, Boken, which is a dungeon crawler where you type as fast as you can and you kill the enemies. I mean, this is the thing. Think about how boring Mavis Beacon teaches typing is. And now you have the chance to walk into a pixelated world, type things really fast, and kill zombies and enemies and things. This 
this is a brilliant idea. And it's just three ninety nine, Zeb. I'd rather sit on Michael's stool for eight hours. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right. Well, if, if you need to learn to type or maybe you want to teach your kids to type or something like that, yeah. check out Type Night because it's a pretty cool game. It is pixelated, but you get to basically improve your typing skills while playing a video game. And it's pretty inexpensive as well. I actually think it's a pretty cool game anyway. Just like the idea of doing using the game to learn stuff is also is always really cool. And I like when people do that, even if it is pixelated for Zeb. I think the pixelization is a is a nice like retro style approach to it. Yeah, it's beautiful. Let's 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 get down to the reality of this. Okay, this game doesn't teach you typing in any way, shape or form because people are going to want to win the game. So they're going to sit there with their two fingers, spelling bread, spelling butter, spelling sausage, spelling whatever it it's is. It's not a teaching of typing. Not, it's a speed testing. It's a, you're, you're yeah, learning to not, type you're fast. You're not going to be sitting there with your fingers on the home keys, trying to type the words in the game without looking at your keyboard. So you have to, that's I'm actually so, one of the things you have to do because yeah, you'd have to, cause you got enemies coming across and words popping up. You can't yeah. be staring down at your keyboard. You have to read the, the it's, it's going to teach touch typing as well. You're it's learned so much. Seb, by yeah. This. Come I'll on. You, we, you'll, yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll get it for you. You'll please, learn. Please save your money, Ryan. It will sit there <laughs> in one of my games that says hours played naught point naught naught. Will you live stream would... it if I purchase it for you? No, <laughs> 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 definitely not. Fine. Well, there's definitely some benefits to it. And if anybody's interested, check it out because it does have, I think it has a lot of potential for you. Yeah. So our spotlight this week is the KDE Education Suite. So you might not be aware, but KDE more, does more than just the Plasma desktop. They create a lot of different programs. On, on, on addition to just being programs for the average user, there's also educational programs. And they have 25 of these programs based on the KDE technologies for students, parents, children, teachers, adults, and all kinds of stuff. And you, of course, it's, it's open source software and everything like that. And they also have a thing called the Wiki to Learn Project, which is an open source project to provide free and collaborative textbooks with the help of the world of university and oh, academia. Awesome. Yeah, so it's, it's really cool because it's creative to, for students and researchers and professors and everything like that to uh, support free knowledge worldwide by creating the not notes for their classes and doing it in a collaborative way where they can integrate and review it with each other and help each other get better notes and therefore benefit and you know they're learning as well as also helping you know check things for teachers as and also like they're creating their own notes and it just does a really cool thing about like just sharing this approach to have a collaborative approach to education and also that doing that they think about textbooks is what's really cool because you can actually share uh, information about various textbooks and they'll actually like be able to scan stuff so that you don't have to pay a thousand dollars for a book because that's basically how it is in at least in the u.s anyway You're so, not wrong yeah so it's a really cool project and if you want to learn more we'll have a link to the educational section on the kde.org website over the past few weeks, we've talked about IP security cameras and trying to bring them home and onto your LAN and how to set them up and different things you can buy. But maybe you're saying to yourself, hey, I don't want to buy something. I want to build something because I'm a nerd and I like building things. Well, guess what? Yeah. If you really want to take control of your privacy and your ownership, what you really have to do is build your own camera. And it turns out it's not that hard to do. All you need is a Raspberry Pi, a USB camera, and some free software that's available on GitHub, and you can make your own ONVIF compliant camera. If you need a refresher, ONVIF is the standard that all IP cameras are supposed to conform to if you want them to be interoperable with other uh, devices. And so if you took my advice and purchased the Synology Disk Station to 
to run surveillance station on and you were looking for a camera that you could put, I don't know, in some place that you wanted to make sure that it was private, don't go buy a uh, access camera. Don't go buy a hike vision and let the Chinese government spy on you. No, go get a Raspberry Pi, go get a USB camera, plug it in yourself and have some fun. Turn it to a project with the kids and make your own ONVIF camera and or NVR based on a Raspberry Pi. We'll have the link for you in the show notes directions on exactly how to do it. Um, check it out. Very nice. So a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting by watching or listening to Destination Linux. We love our patrons. They get to join us as we record the live show and give us feedback directly, which sometimes helps change our decision or at least give a differing point of view on the topics that we're covering. If you want to join in the live show, you can become a patron as well. We also added sponsors to the mix, so you become a sponsor in sponsors if you don't want to join on Patreon. The fee for joining is darn near free. It is a super low, low price every month. And you also, if you can't join us live, get the option to get an unedited version of the episode that you can listen to at any time. Speaking of support, become a part of the community by going to destinationlinux.network and joining our forums, our Mumble server, and all of the other things that we have available for you there. Did you know that we have a new podcast called DLN Extend? Yeah, that's right. It's kind of like cops except for Linux. They come and tell us all the things that we did wrong and then take us to task. You can listen to that and... You can, it can be the after show of the podcast, diving into the topics that we cover into our own shows, providing a different perspective, and they tell us essentially why they think that we're wrong. And we're right. we appreciate them. We are right, and we'll defend that the next episode. And if that doesn't work, we'll eventually just cancel the show. But hey, for now, go ahead and check out <laughs> DLNX10. Let us know what you think. We also have Linux for everyone. DOS Geek, This Week in Linux, Ask Noah, so Tux Digital, Zebedee Boss. If you want Linux content, there's only one place to get it. It's destinationlinux.network. Check it out there. Become a part of the community. Make your voice heard. And it's a two-way communication street. You get to define the content that we make for you. Help us help you. Destinationlinux.network. Check it out. So please get back to us and provide us some um, feedback. And I know we ask this question every single week, but we really do mean it. Yeah, Without you guys sending in those emails, the beginning, the beginning of the show wouldn't have some of those fantastic discussions that we've been having. So send that email in to comments at destinationlinux.org. We have our Telegram group. We have Discord, Discourse, Twitter, Mastodon, and a whole host of other ways that Michael has put up for us on destinationlinux.org forward slash contact so please keep those comments and questions coming we love reading them and hearing of ways we might be able to improve the show finally don't forget to join our mumble server chat with the community set up gaming sessions and enjoy networking and if you want some more content the fun doesn't stop here we also have our own channels you can check out you can check out ryan by going to youtube.com slash dosgeek where he fills your brains on hardware software and all things linux you can check out Zeb's content at youtube.com slash Zebedee Boss, where you can find him playing games like uh, Project Cars, Eurotruck Simulator, and other things on his U Zebedee Gaming YouTube channel. You can find my content at tuxdigital.com, where I do a week in-depth weekly Linux news podcast called This Week in Linux and other Linux-related content sometimes. And you can also check out Ask Noah Show, where he has the, uh, the weekly talk radio show at 6 p.m. Central on Tuesdays. You can join him, and he'll answer your Linux and tech questions at theasknoahshow.com. And also be sure to share the show on social media. Everybody have a great week, and remember that the journey itself is just as important as the stool you're sitting on. Have a great week. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. That was good, though. I was trying to think what <laughs> you changed it to, and I couldn't think of anything. <laughs> you nailed it, man. we got to have something there.
And up next in the the comment section, uh, what feedback? What? <laughs> you should leave that in. Just saying. <laughs> what? Uh, uh, what? Uh huh. Nine dollars. Here's the thing: when <clears throat> it's a smooth screw up, it's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> People think, man, that Michael guy screws up cool. Yeah, sure. That's totally gonna stay in well, because it's I, cool. I, I, oh, it's cool thing. like my like stool. Like, here. So Ethan has to say, hello, Michael. I love the stool that you have in your office. It is so fantastic. Uh, apparently, that's not... It's not what the email says. It's Can you please just says. read Ethan's comment? Okay, okay. So up next in the feedback, Ethan writes in to say, hello, DL chaps. I've been listening to the show for a while now, and it is fought by far the best show are going there. to be so vocally opposed to what Google and Microsoft do. I don't think it's bad. <laughs> you got me good on that one. I didn't read it, and then I read it. <laughs> Micro stool. We put micro stool. Zen put micro stool. That's pretty legit. Oh my goodness. That's just better than if he had read it. <laughs> okay. What's a oh micro stool? Micro stool. It's 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 so it's so ergonomic that it's tiny. <laughs> The editing is going to be fantastic for you this week. The show will be out Monday, right? Oh, no, definitely not. All you right. Can tell us about what you purchased next week because we won't make fun of you. No, 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 no. Right. I mean, that's Ryan speaking for himself. I make no promises. That's why I'm saying no. Could you please read okay. what you I do think it's bad that when they do it, but a good when. Nailed it. <laughs> that wasn't an email. <laughs> no. How do you how do you spell that exactly? What my Yeah, I don't know. Oh, it starts with a B. You get it? You get it? Okay, you got it. We decided to read it on the show. So important. Poor Ethan. Opt out by default with the opt in option is preferable in my opinion. Who wrote that in there? <laughs> Noah. <laughs> I just wanted to know how to spell that. <laughs> okay, we're we're children. Okay, we're gonna. What's wrong with us? Okay, up next in the feedback section, to assume consent like based on someone's lack of patience. I think it's important to maintain a principled and unified. What was it supposed to be? Stance. <laughs> I hate you guys. <laughs> I hate you guys. <laughs> they put they by the way, patrons, they put maintain a principled and unified stool about telemetry in assembly. No, what is happening? Oh my god. <laughs> oh. Just gotta go in out take How you feeling, Michael? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I haven't decided yet. Mm-hmm. Oh, we've heard his feelings. I have to get back it's to you. No, it's it's. I don't care about the feelings. I don't care about the trolling. I care about how much editing I'm going to have to do because you guys just I mean, hate me so much. We love. I'm you. not sure that we care uh, about editing. It was a good purchase. Good for you. You're, 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 you're muted for the rest of the show. How good dare you? How dare you congratulate him on his on his nice little stool there? I mean, how many good times just spent nine dollars? Got in a situation where you don't know whether you want to sit or stand. Yeah, it doesn't really happen to me. <laughs> 
It's called being. I'm pretty it's much called, always. It's called like caring how, about my back and caring about the health oh, as an individual individual person. He cares and about his health. Clearly, Noah doesn't care about his health because he has some off-brand Sprite back there. So <laughs> off-brand, but it's bubbly. What's wrong with you? What, what kind of yeah? What self? did you What did you do? Spend nine dollars on that? God. No, I spent. <laughs> it, uh, actually, I probably did. It's expensive. It's you only get eight cans instead of twelve. But you really don't have bubbly in your neck of the woods. No, I've never uh, heard no, of that. We drink things like Coke. Are you serious? And Pepsi. And I've never heard of that actually. I, it's probably look, here. Look, we just don't. We just look, don't Roy look. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's look. It's a Lacroix little pet, a competitor. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, but, like, it's like the popular. Obviously, you shop at Whole Foods. <laughs> I like Bubbly because it is available in gas stations. Okay, they yeah, have, it's like a brand. Of one. course, like of course, so can, of course, yeah, yeah of right. course, of course. Yeah. Sure, yeah. he goes to Starbucks and orders a coffee, and then nine dollars stool buyer. No, he orders he orders a, his uh, half calf mocha latte with a just a little extra little whip in it, and also make sure it's uh, it's non fat milk, so that I can put my Bubbly in it, so it's even more special. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do with you. He has a $29 drink. <laughs> okay. Listen. Now that I'm done trolling back. Okay. Let's Thanks for shoving your money in our face. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>